Welcome to Pixel Chasing, the podcast where we talk to fascinating people about the most exciting and disruptive trends affecting our world today. With a focus on innovation, science and technology, we engage with the trailblazers and influencers who are taking an active role in shaping our future and signposting the current winds of change. So whether you're walking the dog, looking for some background content for your workout, or are simply looking to learn from experts in their fields, there'll be something for you on Pixel Chasing. Welcome to Pixel Chasing. I am Michael Marciano and today I have the distinct honour and privilege of welcoming to the podcast the one and only Draw Poleg. I am a huge fan of Draws and as you will no doubt hear in the episode, he is someone who has immense clout, so much that it is impossible not to be drawn into his thinkings about the world as it is and how it will be in the future. Uh, for those who don't, you who don't know who Draw is, first of all, shame on you. But secondly, he is an economic historian researching technology's impact on the way people work and live. He regularly briefs and advises companies such as UBS, Bank of America, HSBC, Recruit Holdings, BCG, Avalon Bay, CBRE, Heinz, British Land, Liberty Mutual, Dubai Holdings, Christian Wayfield, and many, many more. He's the author of Rethinking Real Estate, an award-winning book that predicted the current reshuffle of offices, homes, and cities. His insights have been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, NBC, Bloomberg, and beyond. Previously, he has worked uh, as a real estate property equity, a real estate private equity executive, startup founder, front-end developer, uh, parliamentary advisor, and a soldier. He's based in New York uh, and following long stints in Beijing, London, Paris, Melbourne, and Netanya. Uh, today's episode was cut short, uh, as by the end my daughter felt the need to interrupt. So depending on how we edit this episode, you may find it ends somewhat abruptly. Uh, I really hope you enjoy listening to, to Draw as much as I enjoy talking to him. Uh, he's fascinating and fantastic. So without further ado, happy listening. Good afternoon. Hi, Michael. Is it, is it morning? Is it morning for you? It is afternoon, lunchtime. Afternoon. Good morning, happy lunchtime. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to speak with me. I'm, I'm, I'm no big fan, been following your work for a very, very long time. So it's a real pleasure to be able to sit with you. Uh, arguably one of Israel's greatest exports after the cherry tomato, drip irrigation and, and Gal Gadot. I think you're just, you're number four in terms of uh, influence. So it's a you, pleasure. You- you forgot Yuval Noah Harari, uh, Daniel Kahneman. There's uh, some yes, more serious they're, they're, experts. They're, they're, they're divisive. You bring people together, so there's a difference there. Not everyone agrees with their sentiments. So, uh, but they'll, maybe they'll, they'll be fifth and sixth down the line. So, thank you for your time. Uh, and I was hoping today to uh, talk about a few things, but not not necessarily in in, in, a, in a particular order. I'd rather look at you. And, and and your career and how that has sort of meandered, intertwined, and linked to appears to be every exciting craze that's been going on, and uh, and how you became a voice of, I would argue, an authoritative voice on a number of uh, of areas. More most recently, real estate, crypto, there's blockchain, and now AI. Uh, and as a starting point, I was just curious to know. Obviously, you, you've got a very large following now across various social platforms and various courses that you run. Uh, if we go back in time how did you begin your career I mean where was your starting point when you started out post I read your blogs and in, in, in you know post-military what was the plan was it to become an influencer it wasn't a thing then so what did you think oh, you were doing what 
Heaven forbid. I, I, I don't think I am an influencer and I, I never wanted to become one. Uh, I think if I had to choose one word, it, it's really like a writer. Uh, everything I've done in life somehow always started from writing about it and usually from writing about it online. Uh, so my career began when I was in high school or even middle school. I was promoting uh, nightlife events. So kind of like not even nightlife. We can call it afternoon life events so you know parties for people for kids my age Uh, writing posters and things yeah giving out flyers basically being a a promoter and uh and sometimes being involved in the production as well so you know i was let's say 14 my brother had a friend who was like 17 who was a dj and had some equipment so me and a few friends would kind of come together pick a venue that also somebody knew somebody and you know charge (laughs) charge like I don't know five shekels or 10 shekels entrance on some Friday afternoon you know before dinner but after school and uh, kind of split the the proceeds uh sounds a little crazy but you know Israel is open like that that you know you can kind of do business as, as a kid uh and uh very quickly I kind of got on the internet in the mid 90s and almost as soon as i got there i started writing so like by building websites and writing there, there were no blogs per yeah, se back then. this is like the audience was so limited were you writing for yourself was it cathartic did you see that it would go somewhere yeah so a couple of things one i participated in all sorts of uh, bulletin boards as they were called at the time you know kind of in online communities particularly about music and, and kind of culture uh, so we would write to each other, you know, whoever was in the group. I don't know, we had like 100 people, so something later maybe it was 500. So we would write to each other and comment and kind of like participate in a community. And second, I would post stuff on my website. Yeah, to who? I'm not sure. You know, when you're a writer, it's kind of like you have some mental issues generally that you think that you have something to say and that people would be interested in them. So you just assume that it would be interest to someone. Uh, but I mean, content, you know, the, the whole essence of the internet is the fact that now everyone can get, like share something. So you kind of felt compelled. Hey, I'm here. I'm I probably, I see other people are writing stuff, so I should write something as well. So I started writing and then everything I've done in life kind of grew out of that. So I, I wrote about music and nightlife and, you know, I worked in that through high school. Uh, later I wrote, I was in China and I was writing about Chinese, uh, the tech scene, the media scene, uh, and I got involved in that, in like real estate development in China and then some online advertising in China. Uh, then I wrote more about whatever interested me at the time, which was more like the intersection of tech and real estate drew me further into that. And then I generally write about whatever I think is interesting. So uh, crypto, AI, geopolitics, whatever kind of pops up and and seems relevant. And also what people actually ask me about, you know, people email me back, a lot of my readers and say, oh, what about this? What about that? So I'm like, okay, it looks like there's something here that needs some more explaining. Uh, But the common thread, I would say, of everything I do is some sort of deep anxiety about the future, maybe, of like, you know, me as a human being, how do I make a living? How do I remain relevant? Uh, and that's what always guides me. And it guides me towards like looking at all these emerging technologies and, and finance and other things. 
uh, which seems to interest other people, even though I frustrate my readers sometimes because it's hard to explain what I actually write about because it keeps changing. It's, but, uh, it's funny you say that, and, and this might be a reference that's completely lost on you and probably a lot of the listeners. When I read your work, did you ever read the, the late Chief Rabbi of England's uh, work? He wrote a lot. Of course, uh, Jonathan he wrote, Sachs. He wrote a lot on so the weekly Torah. He wrote uh amazing it was covenant conversation and what he did amazingly was the i read all of it every, oh. every week over the year i've read maybe, so maybe that's what you're influenced by because his ability to weave deep theological concepts with uh secular thinkers with modern populist uh individuals and create a deep deep relevancy and poignancy from things that often felt abstract and, un and unconnected and when I read your work, something very similar. You'll write with a fluency, which is, you know, is mind-boggling given your mother tongue is most likely not English. Uh, and your ability to bring disparate strands into a really cohesive narrative. And I don't know whether you think that way or it's deliberate, but part of what makes it so engaging and convincing is that it doesn't feel like it's just draws thoughts, which are obviously highly valuable, but they're always, almost always brought in from a left field concept that you sort of tie together quite nicely. Is is that deliberate? So one, I mean, Rabbi Sachs, I think I, I, I really read most of his stuff relatively late in my career, I would say. Uh, so, but I do think we're both drawing from the same places. I mean, I think the, you know, <laughs> while we're on the topic, uh, I think it's a very Jewish way of approaching topic. I mean, you know, the Jewish literature and Jewish law is, it's all like random discussions of, you know, starting from uh, how to clean your bathroom and then through that, uh, figuring out some principle that applies to uh, how to wage war and then to economic issues. Like, you know, it's all it's always like a conversation that kind of is very eclectic and mixed up. And that also assumes that there are certain kind of deep principles that you can see in one place and that apply to another place and that everything is kind of fair game in terms of like philosophizing about it and uh, making it relevant somehow. Uh, so yeah, I would say it is very Jewish. I think my 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 thinking and, and my approach is, is very Jewish. I had never defined it like that, but it is. Um, in terms of whether it's intentional, not as I, I think generally my work is quite un. Uh, I think I could benefit, let's say, financially from being much more deliberate and much more kind of uh, structured about what I write about, when I write about it. Uh, I, I tend to be the opposite of that. I'm, I'm very intuitive in terms of, you know, I write about what interests me. Uh, it's very hard for me to be disciplined, uh, even though I work a lot and I write a lot. If there's something that I have to write, uh, it's gonna be very hard for me <laughs> to write it. Uh, and it's a constant discussion internally for me, whether that means I'm lazy or I'm not serious or whether that's actually my way of being serious or I should just follow what I feel. And, you know, it's it's an ongoing discussion. Uh, so I think the, the 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 short answer is that, that that's just how I think. So that's how I write. I kind of see stuff and I'm like, oh, this connects to some other thing and this is fun to mix them together. Uh, so, yeah. Well, surely, I mean, I, I, I can relate to that. I'm a very... Uh what I tend to do is to leave the most important things in my life to do to the very last minute. Like, and the things that are the most uh, irrelevant, uh, but enjoyable always take priority. So I can relate to that, but arguably what you just described in a world, and you've touched upon this in some of your writings where uh, AI can, can consume, you know, the world's content being 
as much as you can an individual think who thinks in an, an unconventional way, that becomes your superpower because otherwise anyone can write anything based on what's out there. Um, and so I wonder those who don't think in that vein and those who work towards writing specifically in a, in a, in a two-dimensional way or very factual, they become obsolete. People like you, and talk about anxiety of the future, I can share in your, your anxiety around where we're going as a society and what we're going to do in it. But surely you're better placed than most, given uh, the way you approach your thinking, the way you communicate your thoughts and the topics you choose to engage in and couple that with a tech revolution that allows you, and I don't know if it's just you in the draw poll leg world of uh, information sharing, but if it is just you, some body to have an impact with relatively low overheads, doesn't that make you the superstar of the future? And now? So, so I think one... I'm, I've been quite impressed with what AI can already do. So I'm not sure it cannot replace people that are writing creatively. So are, you, so are, are you real, by the way? Are no, you AI right now? I, I am real, but let's put it differently. I'm pretty sure that AI will be able to produce very creative and compelling syntheses of different things uh, in a fun way. Uh, as for people... And, and the effect on them, it's not clear. I mean, even if it cannot produce what I write, it can overwhelm my audience to the point where it's very hard to even find what I write. Uh, but that's has always that has always been true on the internet because there's so much stuff out there uh, and still people manage to find stuff that, that resonates with them. And I think that's where future hope also comes from. We already know from, from our experience online that what people are looking for, the, the more abundance there is of, of information, the more people tend to be segmented into smaller and smaller segments, and the more these segments suddenly become financially viable. Uh, so one of the things that amazed me and, and that amazed me every day is how I can make a living with still a relatively small audience and how I even made a living with an even smaller audience uh, and be relevant to like you know a certain group of people in a way that both I think creates value for for my audience, I hope, and and I'm told, and also that allows me to to keep doing it. Um, and we spoke before about my strange style and and the eclecticism of it. And I think it does it comes down to that that I think people are not necessarily looking for the best or the latest or they're looking for a very specific voice. And the more content there is, the more there is room for specific voices to draw an audience and become viable. Uh, in some way. So personally, I think humans will be making money from creating content in 10 years as well, uh, and in 20 and in 50. I also think this is a broader trend with technology is that when we look at how it impacts content specifically, we miss out how it impacts the rest of the economy. And usually the net effect is that it improves productivity in other parts of the economy so much that it creates much more time for leisure for people. And then they end up consuming even more content and content kind of uh, gets integrated into more things, which creates demand for all sorts of new creations. So if you look back 100, 120 years, you see it very clearly, you know, how, let's say, I don't know, records or TV or films decimated a lot of the creative arts in one way. But on the other hand, they created so much more demand for content that I think arguably today, there's still a lot of people that work 
even more people that work in those industries than 120 years ago, even though technology now allows like one person to serve 200 billion listeners uh, at one time. And still, I think we have as many singers today as we had before radio and records uh, came up. And so, yeah. It just feels, and I've read a lot of your your thoughts around the the long tail and how more people will have access to more tools to create a larger mm-hmm. audience themselves historically people were limited and restricted to their often their geographical locations to and music is a good example for this but surely we just get saturated to a point where there's equality of opportunity but there's just not equality of outcome and fundamentally it's so few people and who will be able to benefit in the ways that you're referencing and alluding to that the delta of the, the haves and the haves not, the influencers and the consumers, uh, and the ability to derive new forms of creativity through consumption, that's outstripped by the decimation of things AI brings. Like surely mm-hmm. the pace, they're, they're not aligned, they're, they're incongruent, and the net result isn't positive. Yes, I think, I don't know if we can say that most people will not benefit, because probably most people will benefit but the distribution of income will be very different than it was, you know, the, let's say the 1950s, if we take that as a benchmark. Uh, so I think we, we will have, we will not have a middle class. We will not have that kind of bell-shaped world. Uh, that was a kind of a feature or an artifact of the industrial world. And it was a feature for a very short uh, time in history. And we we keep referring back to it as if that's normal and now is weird. But actually, most of history was kind of defined by the same a uh, kind of uh, extreme inequality. Um, that said, I think even in the 20th century, with that world of the middle class, there was that industrial tendency to create a few like very large organizations that are very powerful. Uh, and and part of how we dealt with that, I think, in two ways: one, from a policy perspective, you know, more public services, more taxes on those corporations, and kind of redistribution. But also from more of, we can call it like a market perspective, we allowed individual people to invest in those giant companies and to benefit from their growth and their stability. So, you know, to, to have those bonds for retirement and those stocks that, that went up in value. Uh, and I think part of what we need to do going forward is to enable people to benefit from all of that technological growth, uh, which is no longer just... Uh, I think just buying shares of public companies is no longer enough. We have to find ways to enable the general public to benefit from kind of earlier stage investment, even investment in individuals uh, and in kind of smaller businesses. Uh, so so that again, so if 100 people write a newsletter and one of them uh, makes $10 million a year so that the 99 others that are writing and maybe everybody else in society could kind of get a little piece or invest in that person that is doing something remarkable. Uh, so I think we'll see some experimentation with with more investment models to kind of moderate. Would you consider uh, tokenizing yourself? Have you considered tokenizing? Uh, I would, but I think well, it's less. The, the thing with tokens specifically is that it seems like more of a gimmick at the moment. Uh, I think it kind of it shows us some models that I think are becoming more and more relevant, and we'll have to figure out how to implement them. But I'm not sure if that's the correct implementation and the correct technology or even the correct moment in time, you know, it might take 20 years until there's like mainstream demand for that type of thing. But I almost have no doubt that it will arrive, that people, on the one hand, individuals will be able to build huge businesses almost on their own, which means that 
you need the public to be able to invest in these type of individuals. And also you need a safety net to enables more to enable more individuals to take those bets and to try to build all sorts of things. Uh, both because it's good, but also because I think people will have less and less choice. So we have to provide some sort of safety net because people make bets. Ultimately, those bets, if they pan out, they benefit society uh, at large. But like, it's not so, realistic. I mean, you, you look at like, uh, like open AI, I think is a great example. So yeah. the points you're referencing is that I think there's around 375 employees and it's a multi-billion dollar and it will become yeah. one of the most valuable. Google has what, 135,000. You can just yeah. see now how two comparative uh game-changing industries the mm -hmm. size the number of people it took to get it to a trillion is so significantly smaller surely fewer people get access to these sort of things and yeah. particularly when it's driven by such high tech isn't is it idealistic to think there's going to be equality of access to the opportunities to these investments surely it's going to be those in the know, those with the connections, those with the skills. And you can see it all now online on Twitter, all these guys and girls selling, you know, pay me $25 and I'll show you how to do a mid-journey proms and I'll show you how to do chat. You can see now there's few people mm -hmm. making big money. Like, did you see a scenario realistically where you can see that equality being shared given it's such a short time frame from five years ago yeah. where we were all thinking our jobs were for life and we can invest in our pensions, which were index linked or linked to real yeah. estate offices. And it... so do I think it's realistic? Whether it's possible? Yes, I think it's possible. Uh, whether it's going to happen, I think we'll get something in between. It will not benefit as much as we could, but we'll probably benefit more than we think. I don't think that everyone will go hungry and the world will cease to exist. Uh, the main issue now, I think, with our policy and, and approach to these things is that it's, it doesn't seem to be very productive. One, our governments are just not very good anymore at spending the money that they have. Uh, so I'm not against taxes and even higher taxes, but it seems like a lot of the issues, definitely in the US, but I know that in the UK and, and elsewhere as well, is that they just, we're not you know, we're not getting enough bang for our buck in terms of our investment in infrastructure, in healthcare, in education. There is a lot of spending, but the outcomes are just not very good because of various reasons. Uh, second is that because of our fears of, you know, everything you just described, which I share, we tend to try to kind of handicap our innovation and our technology companies. Uh, and also to kind of not celebrate people who try to do crazy things and sometimes succeed and really benefit all of us, uh, which I think is just very unhealthy for a society. I think we have to find a way to kind of actually push in both directions, both to encourage more innovation, to celebrate people when they do great things, and also to to like not make too much fun of them or villainize them, vilify them when when they uh, when they fail. But at the same time, to figure out how to take even more of the profits from that and redistribute it and reinvest it in a way that benefits society as a whole. So uh, we have to do both. One analogy that I like on this front is, is the, the Norwegian model of how to deal with oil profits. Uh, I think we should treat innovation as, as kind of a natural resource that suddenly boomed. And, and like, obviously, it's, we've been innovating for a long time, particularly here in America. But it's very clear that over the last 10 years and probably for the next 10, 20 years, there's going to be like this explosion of of new ideas that create a lot of new wealth that comes out of nowhere. And because it happened so quickly 
and it's so concentrated in a few firms and a few locations, it can have a very negative impact on the rest of society. Uh, and, and I think that the right policy is to, one, harvest a lot of those profits, but reinvest them partly outside of government or through some independent agencies. So not like private ones, but kind of like, like, again, like the Norwegian oil fund has its own board. There's legislation that kind of specifies what it's allowed to do and not allowed to do, which means it's sheltered from short-term political concerns. So whoever's in government cannot just come and take the money and do whatever they want with it. It has like a specific mandate. And that it invests both in terms of in just investing that money financially for the benefit of the public, so to make sure that it actually makes money and everyone has enough for retirement, and it also invests in initiatives that ensure that more people are going to continue to have opportunity to do cool things in the future. So in education, in healthcare, in in general facilities that that make life better and make it easier for you know for children to learn and for people to live a healthy life. Uh, I think this this way of thinking seems to be uh, like something we should. That more governments should explore. It feels positive and think really between the lines. It feels like uh, to handle the challenges that are, are coming out you know, thick and fast, we need strong social contracts and social cohesion. Cohesion, but it feels like the world's never more divided. Politics feels very adversarial, uh, and often economic policies are used to batter the side with. So it would be nice if we were more collaborative. Uh, with how we went about defining our politics. But looking around the world right now, and, and we'll see in the US elections next year, it's going to be a very, very divisive race. And you see it in Israel, you see it in Hungary, you see it in Europe, you see it here. Uh, the the centre ground seems to have, 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 have sort of disappeared. And it feels like you need a strong centre to balance uh, the rapid change we're getting. And without that sort of unified approach to facing these problems, we're going to struggle. And, and, and around that, I wonder, overall then, and we'll, we'll move away from AI shortly, uh, if you had a a line around, mm-hmm. you know, super excited to terrified, both as a father and as an entrepreneur, you know, we heard recently, I don't know what, what, what the actual survey was, but half of all AI experts, you know, have a 10% fear that AI will end humanity. Do, do you sit on that fence? Are you sort of uh, bearing your head in the sand as to that? Are you looking to maximize opportunity for yourself? When you look at your kids, do you go, I'm, I'm excited for you because the future is going to be something great. Or do you sit and go, I'm a, I'm actually, I'm going to do good on my newsletters and use AI tools to get more reach. But fundamentally, the future scares me. So I'd say super excited, uh, not because I'm burying my head in the sand, but just because I think this is the correct approach at this moment in time. There's definitely a lot of things to worry about. Uh, the thing is, most of them, I don't think we're in a position to really influence or even understand. Uh, at the same time, we're stuck in some sort of game where whatever we decide to do, there's other people on earth that are going to decide to do other things. So we cannot just decide to uh, become smarter more slowly or just kind of uh, forfeit technologies that we already developed because the Chinese and others are going to keep running ahead. And even people here within the US, like you just can't tell people to stop developing software or to stop training models. It's just not something that is practically possible. Should we try to develop institutions and then approaches and you know everything else to figure out what to do about it? Definitely. And again, and the safety nets and all of that, I'm all for it. Uh, but it comes back to to what we just discussed the, the previous question. I don't think we should slow down AI. We should try to be as innovative as we can, and at the same time, think more seriously about how we're reinvesting the profits, how we're leveraging the technology, what kind of safety nets do we have. Uh, 
for me personally, uh, it definitely introduces more uncertainty, but uh, <laughs> I, so my, my weakness is that anxiety that I described that really drives everything I do. So I, I was worrying about these things long before everyone else started to, or most people did. So when you said, oh, five years ago, we thought we we're going to have a stable career. I never thought that. Uh, I, I like really from my bones, not even, I, I didn't even understand that I'm not thinking that, but, uh, but I always assumed that something terrible is about to happen and the world is going to turn upside down. And I designed my life to prepare for that. Uh, and you, I mean, it, you, have you, have you got a bug out bag? Have you got a no, bag? No, exactly. I was about to say, and I mean it more intellectually rather oh. than, you know, I don't have like a gun and like a bunker and everything else. But more just I assume that whatever I know is about to become irrelevant in a minute and that I have to already think about something else, which is why my writing tends to jump from different places. And people are like, oh, why are you already going there? I, I still want to write and read about this. But I'm like, yes, but I have to write about the other thing because that's, you know, I just feel like I have to and I have to understand it. Um, when I look at my kids, I'm terrified, but for other reasons, just because the world is changing so quickly and I'm so scared of like not, of one day not understanding them and them becoming too weird for me to really get it. Uh, but I hope that, you know, I'll, I'll be able to stay a cool dad for, 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 for at least 15 more years until they're a little older. And then the, hopefully we, we, sur we survive puberty. And then after that, whatever they do is fine. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's a, uh, in a way, I'm I'm one of those people that when things become really crazy, I kind of feel more comfortable because I'm like, oh yes, that's what I prepared for. That's what I expected. So I, I feel like more I feel like more at home. Uh, there's something comforting about it. But uh, I think there's some people very different. But you know, even someone like Trump, there's people that like to kind of cause chaos because that's where they're most comfortable. So I, I have to admit, I have a bit of that. So I don't try to cause cause chaos. But I think when I see things getting crazy, it excites me. And I feel like okay, I'm I'm more adapted to this environment than than probably like, the average uh, corporate employee. Autopilot mode, you fly on. You, you, you actually you yeah. mentioned again your writing. I thought I guess I'd be remiss not to to go back a few steps. Uh, I was lucky enough to be in the audience for your book launch in England, which feels like decades ago, but it was pre-COVID. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering. It's an amazing rethink. It's an amazing book, and it became like a sort of a bible for anyone looking trying to understand real estate in a, with a modern perspective. Uh, and removed from the shackles of old school thinking about it. You got so much right in that book, and a, a large part was catalyzed by the COVID pandemic. Did you get anything wrong? Did anything not pan out as, and I know it wasn't a, a book around predictions, but ended up having what we're seeing today, a lot of things you alluded to uh, there. Has anything not materialized, or have you been surprised how COVID or a post-COVID mm. world hasn't met any of your thinkings around real estate? Not really. I mean, not everything materialized yet, obviously, but I don't think anything happened that like contradicts uh, some of the, the the key themes in the book. Uh, if anything, I regret not being kind of more kind of uh, hyperbolic and kind of uh, <laughs> <laughs> clear about things. But uh, is that because... <laughs> The world people weren't ready or because actually it, it it was too much of a stretch to even go there that it would have been silly to think that we'd be in a point where offices might be 60 percent empty in the, yeah. in the west end or something i think one because i generally i like to take people through my thinking process and then kind of let them 
apply it to whatever it is that that they want to answer. So I, 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 I seldom really tell people exactly what's going to happen unless I really feel it very strongly. Uh, second, particularly because it's a book, then, you know, yeah, the book is much more about, let me show you how I would approach these questions of, you know, let's say, what's the future of real estate? So this is the history. These are the dynamics that, that played out so far. These are the kind of lines that I see now intersecting. intersecting. So I'm going to describe these lines very, very clearly and understand what's driving them and what might kind of uh, push them off their current course. And then I'll tell you where I think it's going, but that's about it. I don't have to say more than that. So I, I don't make necessarily very bold claims. I just say, okay, this is what I see. This is where it's headed as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I think often that's enough, uh, particularly when fewer people are even saying anything about it or seeing those lines at all. So I think just kind of letting people see those lines uh, is enough. But yeah, I can be more hyperbolic and uh, ridiculous, but uh, it's probably going to be good for business. But <laughs> <laughs> Which of those lines just kept on going? I mean, an easy one to pick is, is sort of the work from anywhere working up from the office from home is that the one that stands out as you look at sort of pre-pandemic post-pandemic a behavioral shift that hasn't quite reverted back to a normal previously i think we've seen returns to high streets and shopping centers and yeah and and i wrote that as well by the way i wrote even when i wrote the book retail was the end of the world and that's and i wrote i think that ultimately especially within cities you know a street in a main, in a like a, a storefront in a main street, or even just in a non-main street, but in an urban area, it has inherent value. It's about figuring out what it is and what to do with it, and you know maybe the prices to adapt, but but it's valuable. And on the other hand, an office building, you know, the twentieth floor of some building, like two thousand square meters of of a box, it, it doesn't necessarily have inherent value. It might, you know, it might just become completely valueless, and you know, particularly in historical perspective, again, the street that. The store at the street level, there was always something going on there that was valuable. But the 20th floor of some building that, you know, th- th- there's nothing really exciting or inherent, inherently valuable about it. Uh, we can't assume that it will always remain valuable. Uh, to your actual question, what are the trends? So it's not so much trends like, okay, what's the percentage of people working from home and saying, oh, it's going up, so it will keep going up. It's more about really the fundamental forces that are that are driving this change. So one of the key things I noticed is that, you know, the, the theory of why cities became so important and offices in cities became so important since the beginning of, of the Internet in particular uh, was based on like three main pillars. And going even backwards, you know, cities started to lose population from around the 1960s, a lot of kind of large Western cities. Uh, into like the 80s, even 90s in some cases. And when the internet came along, some people predicted that, you know, that's going to intensify and people are going to work from home and work from anywhere. And then the cities will actually uh, become less important as employment centers more and more important as places of, uh, you know, of leisure and culture and all of that. Uh, most notably, Francis Karen Cross, Dame Francis Karen Cross now, uh, who wrote for The Economist, and then she wrote a book called The End of Distance uh, at 1997. And that's what she predicted. Actually, what's starting to happen now is what she predicted uh, back then, 26 years ago. But in reality, after she wrote the book, that's not what happened. Actually, cities became more important. Offices became larger, denser. More companies moved back into the city. Uh, and 
Urban economists explained it in three main ways. Sorry, I'm going to give you a really long answer, but I think it's, it. it's interesting. Uh, so there were kind of three theories that explained why this is happening. You know, how come uh, Ed Glazer, the the kind of the, the economics dean at Harvard and probably the most uh, prominent urban economist in the world said that the central paradox of our time is the fact that while moving information and moving goods became cheaper and faster than ever, cities became more prosperous and more important. So you would think that the opposite would happen. And he, he wrote that in 2007, so 10 years after that death of distance uh, theory. And, and economists explain that in three, three main ways. One is that as the economy becomes more dependent on information technology and knowledge work, uh, then the importance of in-person interactions grows because that's how you produce innovation through what economists call collisions. You know, you, people work together, they bump into each other, they bump into people from other industries. They kind of, you know, the city kind of creates something that you can't create anything else. The second theory was more about lifestyle. That's like the Richard Florida rise of the creative class kind of theory. Uh, and they they don't disagree with each other. It's just like a different kind of driver that says, as the economy becomes more dependent on technology and innovation, it becomes more dependent on white collar, highly educated people. And these people like to live in cities because of the culture, because they like to live next to each other, because they like to eat uh, ethnic food for various lifestyle reasons. But because these people are becoming more important then cities are becoming more important because that's where these people like to live. So the offices are moving there because the, the talented people are there. And the third theory, uh, most associated with Enrico Moretti, uh, a, a UC Berkeley economist, uh, originally from Italy, was that as work becomes more specialized, uh, it becomes much more valuable to match people with very specific skills and experience to very specific work tasks. And that's something that you can only do if you hire within a large labor pool, which only exists in a large city. So you have to like be in a very large region. Uh, now, I looked at these three theories and already from 2015, or so I started to see that something in the theory doesn't add up or more correctly that the theories are correct, but their implications are very different from what their original authors thought they would be. And what I mean by that is that until 2015 or so, we thought that the matching theory and the collisions theory go hand in hand. They both point towards, okay, you have to be in a large city because that's where you get in-person interaction and that's where you get the largest labor market. But from 2015 or so, they started to be at odds, meaning companies suddenly realized that they can actually have employees in different markets working together in on the same things, which meant that they could now, instead of hiring just from New York City or from London, they can have an R&D center in New York City and in London and in San Francisco and in Singapore, in a few different places, which means that now there's a trade-off. They have to decide, okay, do I want to split the work into multiple locations and then hire from a pool of 100 million people instead of hiring from a pool of 10 million people? Or do I want to keep everyone together and just work in person? So suddenly and, and, there was- It was that catalyst around technology. That that that, that shift was because so we, I think... you could work more effectively with exactly. different markets. So it... It's not, nobody came out and said exactly why it happened, but it's very clear that around 2015, something happened and these companies started splitting their headquarters, most notably Amazon, but all the others as well. So Apple, Facebook, Spotify, Google, Stripe. And 
And again, companies always had branches all over the world. So it was very easy to miss this thing. Like, it's not like a big deal that companies have an office in, in other big cities. The big deal was that they opened this office not in order to sell to the local market or to reach local customers. They opened this office in order to hire from there and then sell stuff to whoever and wherever they were selling and to. is that higher on talent there. and on, on and on cost? Did it go both ways? So we'll go where the talent is? And we'll it also was go much more on talent. It was much more on talent. Um of course, they're related as well because you want to afford to hire the best possible people for the lowest possible price. But they were not necessarily opening offices in India. You know, if you have an office in San Francisco and you open one in New York and in London, you're, you're not really cutting costs uh, so much. Uh, so, and I saw that happening and I even heard what some of them were saying. So when Stripe in 2019, before COVID, they opened their fourth like hub and they said, our next hub is remote. It doesn't exist anywhere. And their CTO said, we open it because we want to reach the 99.74% of employees that don't live in Singapore and in Dublin and San Francisco and New York. And I was like, hmm, that, that didn't they hear the theory that they all have to be in person? And like, what does it mean? If, if you can split your headquarter into five, why can't you split it into 10 or 20 or 50? And that's a question that I asked in the book. So... And it's also an example of how I approach things. I didn't say, okay, this is what's going to happen. But I just said, there's a clear question here and I don't have an answer as to why this is not going to happen. I don't see a limiting principle that to that will say, okay, Stripe can only split itself into five and not to 50. Because if people are collaborating remotely, it doesn't really matter anymore exactly where they are. Uh, and um, yeah, and, and that's... That's what ended up happening. And I think the process that's driving it is only intensifying. Work becomes even more specialized. Uh, hiring from a larger pool becomes even more important. Uh, so it will push, expand that kind of radius from which companies are willing to, to hire uh, further. At the same time, I do think that in some fields, the in-person interaction will remain very important and maybe even will become more important than ever. But I think overall, that kind of matching effect is going to overwhelm almost everything else and drive people to hire from from anywhere more and more. So it definitely feels that companies who are more modern companies, tech-oriented businesses have that mindset and uh, legacy institutions somewhat struggle with that. And you, you would have heard and written about a lot of the financial players saying, oh, back to the office, and that hasn't really manifested. Do we appreciate uh, the middle and long-term effect of the slow and continual decline of the office worker, for example. When one looks at a city as uh, a microcosm of activity and what it means when you pay for the subway, you pay your ticket, and when you go to the office, you buy your sandwich and you buy your drink and you buy your coffee and you go to the room and use your utilities and, and you're paying your rent and you go to the restaurant and a waiter serves. Like, how how impactful is a... And I know... About you know about potential people going to work. But let's just say because conceptually, if if the amount of activity within these urban spaces decreases, is there a measure by which we know what the knock-on effect is to that city? And does it hit a point of like no return? Uh, then do people start moving out? Uh, uh, others start moving in. You know, uh, damn it, you know the bro broken window theory. We, you know, we start getting a bit of decay. Yeah. Do, do we get that? And are we on that path? In any major city that you make, guess San Francisco might be an example. But is mm. there? Do you see from where you sit? Is the writing on the wall for you where cities are going to go up and some of it just will hit a point where they can't return to their, their glory days? 
I think I mean generally I'm optimistic about the role of cities over the next 50 100 years uh but that doesn't mean that it will happen automatically cities will have to adapt and the adapting even in the best case will be painful and take time uh, you know and time might mean a decade or or two uh definitely once you make once the office is no longer the focal point it will hurt city finances it will hurt local businesses uh which is tragic you know finally they figured out what to do with all of this retail you know they turned a lot of it into food and entertainment and suddenly all the people uh that were supposed to like uh be a captive audience are, are really not showing up anymore uh i'm optimistic though because kind of tourism and other activities in some cities at least picked up the slack pretty quickly i think i just read about new york city that receipts from uh kind of taxable dining and entertainment uh, actually exceeded pre-COVID uh, for the first time. So not just that it came back, but it kind of like, I think even significantly higher now because people are doing more everywhere else other than in the office, it seems like. Uh, so that's good news. But at the same time, you have the property taxes side of it. So not the business tax where, you know, offices are, real estate in general is a huge part of of urban budgets. I think in New York, property taxes are about 40 or even 45% of of the city's budget. Uh, and a lot, most of that is probably residential, but still offices are a big chunk of it. And as their valuations plummet and vacancy plummets, there's going to be, that's going to be felt. Uh, but uh, yeah, but I don't think it's the end of the world for cities. It's just another adjustment. And, and even over the last, I mean, over the last hundred years, they probably had four waves at least that kind of required similar uh, adjustments. Uh, so my main fear is again about us as a society and our government, whether we still have that spirit of of adapting and of being open minded and of, you know, going with the flow of technology, rather than kind of trying to force people back into uh, the old way of things or trying to uh, to to pretend that nothing has happened. Because when I look at a lot of our cities, there and and our country governments as well, they're still spending like there's no tomorrow and still kind of just doubling down on whatever they've been doing for the last few decades. And probably they have to spend on completely different things and do completely different things uh, in order to have a better outcome for everyone. So I suspect you get lots of uh, proverbial knocks on your doors or emails saying, hey, what do I do? Either mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm a fund that owns these skyscrapers or conversely, I'm just an individual who owns this small office building on the outskirts where actually I haven't got the economies of scale to actually build out large, exciting office spaces and they're very small floor plates and they're, they're not sexy. In those scenarios, the big fund with large exposure to, let's say, traditional office blocks in, in, in large cities or even tertiary so secondary cities and the small family that have saved in years and bought a few offices around the country who haven't got the means or the experience to turn into the sort mm -hmm. of space we've been discussing around being experienced first, what, what what do we say to them? Is it just, is it sell up? Is it trying to do something creative? Is it, is there a lot of options realistically? So one, as you may know, I don't like to get too practical. Uh, that's where I become humble. I, you know, I think I help people figure out what's coming uh, more like a weather forecast. I'm, I'm reasonably good at that. I don't tell them exactly what they, you know, which window to close and where to dig, uh, because I think other people are better at it, and because I think 
particularly in real estate, every deal is a different story. And there's still there's still office buildings that are good to buy now or good to hold now. There's some that are good to sell. It really depends on so many things. Uh, so I'm kind of cautious about that. Uh, but I think here too, like, like the story of careers that we began with, I think there's room both for some giant companies that will do more than any real estate company has ever done, you know, add all sorts of services, build a network, be like the Marriott of, of real estate. And at the same time, there's also room for small, specialized, niche, unique, interesting ideas and concepts. Uh, and I actually think we should have even more of the smaller ones just as a society and as an economy, because the new kind of formats and things that work will emerge there through people's experimentation. Uh and, and you can see that already, you know, cities like London, for example, have much more interesting architecture than New York, I would I would say, just because the, the sites are smaller and people can build all sorts of little things without taking huge risk and without having to get, uh, you know, to, I mean, they need permits as well, but it's harder, I think, to develop in New York than, uh, than in London. While in London, the, the sites are so big that it's very, very hard to try anything new. And if you build something, you're going to do something that is very kind of conservative and build kind of the same thing that just like all the other buildings next to you. Uh, so I think we we need to encourage that kind of granularity and experimentation. Um, so yeah, if I was a small owner, I would, what would I do? I think you can still, you can still make money either by partnering or by doing something unique. Like my office here is, first it's an office, so I, Leave home my, my next question was going go to be is without getting too personal, what is your the situation? Do you yeah? So I so I I work at an office every day. Uh it's kind of the next town over, so it's about 10 minutes from home. Do you walk? Do you uh, drive bus? Track? I, I drive or take the train. And uh so it's 10 minutes from home in one direction, it's like 25 minutes from the center of Manhattan, let's say in another direction by train. Um and this building is actually owned by a family, you know, they're not Blackstone. They own probably two or three other buildings as well. So, I mean, they're not, uh, they're not hungry, but you know, it's a, I don't know, like a five-story office building. And one of the kids a few years ago said, Hey, you know, let's take one of the floors and make it a little more flexible uh, and kind of build suites. And, and that's what they did. So I have a private office, but you know, I didn't have to fit it out. I can do it like one month by month. There's like a, a a common space with, you know, a coffee and all of that. They have gradually, they even brought like a community manager to be in charge of all the customers instead of just the family kind of or brokers dealing so with you, them. You, you call them customers, not tenants. There you go. Like, yes. That's the language. And uh, yeah, that's in the book as well. And um, yeah, so, you know, and, and I think it works for them. So it doesn't, and, and I also think, these changes and, and other changes that are happening in the world of technology and finance, they give a lot of advantages to the very large companies in many ways, but they also make smaller properties suddenly much more relevant for institutional investors because these investors, they're terrified of everything that's going on everywhere else. And they're pushing into smaller and smaller assets and into stranger and stranger types of kind of operating models. So suddenly even a building like this you can get a pension fund to buy it from you or to partner on it with you. 
whether them directly or someone on their behalf. But that's something that 10 years ago, for example, they wouldn't even look at. They would say, oh, this is too small or it's like a, the, the wrong part of the city. It's just not interesting to us. And now it is becoming an institutional kind of class uh, building, which means, again, that if even if you're a small operator, as long as you know what you're doing, suddenly you can get cheap money and kind of stable relationships uh, and opportunity to even scale yourself much further than you ever imagined so uh yeah so I, I don't look at what's happening now just as like you know a disaster for for small landlords necessarily or for even all offices uh yeah you have to think and is there a limit you think people will go to in terms of the distance you mentioned 10 minutes you know if you had the same experience but it was um because I, I speak to some, some colleagues who used to travel daily to work two hours each way so yeah i was there two hours back uh do you think all we're seeing is actually there's a desire and, and 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 a preference to be with people, be in a different space, not to be at home, to be able to go and grab a coffee and a sandwich as long as it doesn't eat in too much into my time? Yes, I think so. Uh, also, I know a lot of people, you should ask yourself, why are they even going to the office and why are they commuting? Some people just, you know, they don't want to be at home. <laughs> they want to be away from their home for as long as possible and arrive as late as possible. Uh, so, you know, so so the, the mission is accomplished as far as they're concerned, even if they're commuting. But I think in general, yeah, I think most people will not be interested in working at home from home, but they will not necessarily be interested in commuting too far Uh for things that they could do from home. Uh, so, and also I think for companies in general, I mentioned previously the kind of Stripe example of the remote hub. I think a lot of the future is exactly about that. It is offices, it is even corporate offices, but they're more distributed than they were previously, uh, which is still a big change, but it's very different from saying everyone is just gonna work from home. I don't think that's what's gonna happen. Uh, so yeah, but I think here my, my hunch is that a lot of knowledge workers kind of have my same the same preferences as I do of like I want to work at an office but I don't want to go too far and I don't want to be told what to do uh of course I'm not I'm not the best example because I work for myself and my work is quite unique but at the same time I I think that a lot of knowledge workers have the same kind of inclinations as I do people that that do a lot of focused work uh and just that generally value their time I think they don't want to commute for an hour and a half every day. No. Uh, and I'm wondering, obviously, we reflect on Adam Newman's theories and philosophizing over the office space, and suddenly some of these seem quite pertinent, you know, going to mm -hmm. space that is very design-led, that encourages those interactions, that has yeah. the social element built into it. But, of course, that hasn't played out, and their share prices are also quite questionable. I'm aware of the time. I know we're going to go, so I'm going to very quickly end. Yeah, on, we, can, uh, we can go a little longer. <laughs> I know you've got a 10 minute commute home. Uh, you're, <laughs> oh, you're just in the middle of the day. Of course. It's late here. I forget. Um, your your latest series that you're running is on AI. So I have two questions around that. One is around the content. But the second piece is, without giving away your secret sauce by anything, how do you, a man with a family and a commute, and I'm assuming interest outside of work. A mortgage. How, and a mortgage uh how do you how do you manage everything so i i find i often struggle with the fact that there's not enough time in the day i, I want to prioritize the kids and the family you know but like there's not enough time to consume and the, the amount i want to consume is only getting more and more and more and also i want to create 
So do you have any practical hints and tips or any insight? How do you manage to do this amazing content, which I am objectively and unequivocally a massive fan of, which must take time because it does. Uh, you run courses, it's the infrastructure, it's setting, it's setting up those, 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 uh, those schemes of work, it's writing books. How, how much has tech enabled you to do that? Or actually, even prior to this, you would always have this sort of output because I sit in, in, in awe of draw. So one, I barely manage. It's important to point that out. You know, it's hard. I don't get to do everything that I planned. Uh, nothing ever goes as quickly or as easily as I thought it would most of the time. Uh, and there's this constant kind of uh, anxiety and uncertainty around it all. So let's 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 take that. Yeah, let, let's acknowledge that. I think beyond that is... How do I manage? You know, I read a lot. I spend a lot of time on Twitter, which I think is Audi an incredible tool. books or you read? So you so, actually... So everything. I, I consume content in every... If I could inject it into my veins, I would do that as well. <laughs> so I listen to podcasts when I walk. I read a Kindle at night in bed. I I read hard copy books, hardcover books. Uh I'm on Twitter a lot. So I just can't, I can't like, I have to absorb information all the time. Uh, that's kind of like my vice in a way. Uh, I get bored very, very quickly. So I have to constantly have feed stuff into my head. Um, I take a lot of notes, which is mostly me emailing myself. Um, so so that, that, by that, is that your uh, app of choice? No Evernote, no OneNote, no Drive. It's just you have a list of, to me, emails that... So I do a few things. I like... I like to write, read on Kindle because I can take, I can highlight stuff and then it's all organized and searchable. Uh, then I use a thing called Readwise, which actually yeah. goes through my highlights and keeps sending me reminders and kind of helps me kind of keep track on it, which I love. Um, and beyond that, I, yeah, I don't have a clear system. You know, I save some articles to pocket, I email myself. It's very, it's not very organized, but it's not terribly disorganized either. It's just like, just like I have a lot of notes and, um, and I write. So I think when you write, you force yourself to think about stuff and to explain it. And now with chat GPT, it's even easier. I just let it do everything. No, but I, for me, it's like the colleague I never had. So it's really good when I write because I kind of bounce ideas off of it. I let it read stuff and comment on it and critique it and argue with me. Are you paying for four, by the way? Yeah, yeah. I'm paying whatever whatever they'll give me, I'll pay for it. <laughs> I mean, it's so the leverage. I mean, it's, it's, it's every, everyone should pay for it. I mean, it's it's such an easy thing to the, the value. It, it's unbelievable. I mean, the, the power that you get, like I would pay whatever they want for it. Like, you know, I'd pay $1,000. No, really, it's like, how could you not pay for it? And uh, it's it's completely a complete tangent, but uh, it made me think of Google actually, because the last time that something emerged that you just start using it and you become immediately so dependent on it was, was I think the search engine. And back then the only way they could go was, was to show ads because online payments were not advanced. You couldn't start charging people. But I thought, you know, if they would have, they could have. The world would have become completely different. If you, they ask, just ask people to pay, instead of having an advertising-based web, we would have had something very different. Different and it would have been interesting. Um, 
So you, yeah, you back- required an assistant. So ChatGTP has enabled you to do more work. A bit yeah, more but that's very recent. But that's very recent. Uh, yeah, so I just read a lot. I try to write, you know, two, three times a week. And I try to discipline myself in various ways. On the one hand, at the same time, to be kind to myself that like, you know, if I feel like writing about something else, that I just go and write about that something else. Uh, I read an interesting thing. There's a, a director, Sidney Lumet, is like one of the greatest directors of the 20th century. And he said that with a lot of his superstars, if he wanted them to do something differently, he actually told them, oh, you, you did great. Okay, I have the takes. I have I have what we need. But now let's do it five more times. Like now just do whatever you want. And he said that's how he got like the, the good stuff. He had to first like tell these people that that they're kind of like, okay. Validation. And then, so I'm trying to, to treat myself in a similar way. I'm trying to like do some stuff that I consider kind of boring or I have to, and then kind of riff off and, and do other stuff that is kind of like irrelevant, but that the irrelevant stuff is usually what ends but up being much, the, if, the if you wrote two, If you wrote two things, <laughs> one that you were impassioned about and was driven by um, just in, in a moment, and you put it out into the ether, and one that you just sort of threw in chat GTP to produce, and you, and you put both out there. And the former didn't land and the, and the, the other yeah. one went viral how as as a creator what's more what's more important to you the the, the external validation and the the, the 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 dopamine we all get with the likes or actually the knowledge that you're putting out stuff that is meaningful and valuable or does it does it maybe cross your mind i mean i i enjoy both i have to say i think obviously i mean you know when you get attention and recognition it's fun i mean you you can't deny it uh at the same time, I do think that most of the best stuff that I write is is not necessarily always the stuff that that resonates with people. Definitely not immediately. Sometimes they come back to it like a year or two later, or I bring it back and put it in context, and then people get it. Uh, but but I definitely enjoy my like you know I enjoy my writing. I re- I like write something and then I come, I'm kind of like happy about it or unhappy about it. But it's not always related to to what people do with it. Uh, and also the process is very different. You know, sometimes it takes me 30 minutes to write something and it like does really, really well. And sometimes I work on something for a month and like nobody cares. Really? So yeah. Um, and, and I would even say that the the stuff, the first kind is even usually succeeds more because uh, it tends to be kind of like more personal, more intuitive, more kind of just like making a single point rather than building a whole theory and people seem to like that more, both because it's easier to understand and also just because it has more personality and uh, it just resonates. Well, that's one thing that's re- that I really enjoy is that <clears throat> you come across as human. You refer back to, there, there was one really nice series where I think you linked it to your time as a soldier. Like, and it was quite, it's quite personal, but it, it, it helps build the character behind the person, that helps yeah. contextualize the words that they write. Uh, and you don't often get that. I think a lot of people don't like making themselves vulnerable in the world of of, of Twitter and, and trolls, and people don't like to give too much away. But for me, it only enriches the content. Uh, and in, in in a world we're going to get to where so much content can be automated, knowing that they, it's coming from a, a person with a backstory makes it that much more enjoyable. So that's just a, a note from me. I, I I really enjoy those bits. Yeah, I think I'm more human in writing than in person. It's hard. To, it's, it's harder for me. <laughs> no, but it's true. I I, exp- I express myself like I don't know how to. I mean, you know, I know how to talk to people in the real world. But when they ask, I feel like my writing is the best way to get to know me and to understand what I do and who I am. When I meet people and I have to ask me, "Oh, what do you do?" I have no idea what to tell them. 
like I think what, was, yeah, what, what is your profession by the way if someone says hey you're, you're at a dinner party and someone's passing you hey so what yeah so sometimes so I say I, I'm, a phrase, writer, I'm a writer yeah I say I'm a writer or I give advice or I'm yeah it's like it's not very clear uh would you ever go into education would you ever go into like more formal i know you're doing the online courses which i I almost went you know when i was studying at the lsc i was already i I did my master's and i was already kind of into the phd program kind of speaking i had like an advisor but then i decided not to do it because i just felt that spending the next five six years researching something super narrow and only uh reporting back to this one academic that as wonderful as they may be are not the most exciting people in the world. I just felt that it's not for me and that the the, the constraints in academia are too are too much for me. For me personally and also too much I think to to produce stuff that is really cutting edge in the topics that I'm interested in. I think for very narrow and specialized stuff, it's still very good like analyzing something specific or or you know scientific work. But work that is so much about synthesizing like mine, I think the constraints that academia puts on you in terms of like what you're allowed to look at, what you're not allowed to look at, which discipline you're into, what processes and methodologies you use, how much conjecture and intuition you're allowed to use. Uh, I just thought that it's not uh, that it's not for me. And these days, you know, I speak, speak at different universities every now and then, but, uh, you know, they don't pay so much. And if you want to like teach there, so one, there's the issue of which department do I even fall into, uh, which is tricky. Philosophy? Second, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but those aren't the ones, you know. So people talk to me from economics, from real estate, from, uh, you know, sociology even. Uh, but they don't really know how to absorb or digest me exactly because by definition, my work. Hello, guest. Hello. I'm working from home. Okay, yeah. I'm going to finish up in two minutes, okay? Say bye, draw. Say bye, draw. You're actually eating bamba. Bye. That's the best. <laughs> I'll be one minute, darling. One minute. I mean, she can hang out with us as well, and we, you know, it's fine. Okay. You're the boss. You're the boss. And this is one of the I do love working from home. It's having the ability to be around the entire time. Mm-hmm. Uh, even around bath time, isn't that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a bath time now. No, I don't think so. Right. This may have caused a, a natural end and pause into <laughs> our talk, which is a shame because I could and would talk to you for hours and I know uh, your time hey. is valuable and I've learned a lot and I'm sure everyone listening is going to be obviously inspired. And just thank you. As I said, I, I, I look back to our first interaction of six years ago. And uh, so since then, I've been uh, an, avid, an avid fan of your writing. And I really enjoy getting, hearing a bit more of the contracts to all today. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, <laughs> uh, I hope you have a lovely afternoon, a wonderful rest of the week. <laughs> and I'll speak to you soon. I'm going to stop the recording now. One second. Thanks, Michael. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for listening to Pixel Chasing and well done for making it right to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode, feel free to share with others who you think may also enjoy it. And to be kept up to date with all they're up to here, you can always follow us on the usual channels. On Twitter, we are at Pixel Chasing. On Instagram, we are 
at pixelchasing and if you want to join our newsletter to be kept up to date with all future episodes you can join that on our website which is pixelchasing.com thank you see you next time